hello. It is your host, Elizabeth Mall, and this is the final episode of season one of Deconstructing the Myth. And this episode is going to be a little bit different because you get to hear my story today. And this wasn't something that I actually intended on really doing when I, you know, outlined the episodes and the people to interview for this season, but I've had people asking, you know, what about your story? Why are you doing this podcast? What is the motivation behind it? What have you learned? And I thought that would be a great way to end our season to let people know, you know, why this started, where I'm coming from and how these stories have impacted that journey that I'm on. So to answer the question, why start a podcast like this? The short answer is it's a school project that I have done as I finish my master's degree in theology, but not just theology. It is in Christian apologetics, which I have kind of kept under wraps because I think that there's a connotation that goes along with that that brings up some things that in my particular case are not true. Um, I think people anticipated that I would do this podcast as a way to like evangelize. And, you know, honestly, I did this podcast because of my own deconstruction and because I wanted to hear what other people were dealing with. And I wanted to know where the issues in our church lies. It wasn't so much as, as a thing to change people's minds as a place to hold space for stories that I think, are kind of shut down in the church today. We don't want to hear what people's grievances are um, about these things, about our own problems, you know, and that's human nature. I don't think that's just a church problem, but I think for me as someone who has really thought that these questions, these big questions about God and ultimate reality are the most important questions, um, I wanted to know. And that's actually why I started this degree. Apologetics in the past has been a source of great comfort and great confidence for me. As I have done this master's, I entered my own season of deconstruction yet again, because this has happened multiple times over my life. Um, But I started questioning, do I believe any of this? You know, and And I think that this project is an outpouring of my search and... It's also um, just been a really beautiful conversation with many different perspectives that ha- that has really encouraged and helped me along my own journey. So to give you a little bit of background about me, I am a Kansas farm kid who grew up near Morganville, which is a really tiny town, um, had one church in town, a Methodist church. And so that's where we went. And I remember honestly, like my first experience or my first like awareness of my faith was doubting it. Um, One thing my mom really focused on teaching me was to be empathetic to the suffering of people around me and the suffering of people that I didn't even know that we'd hear about on the news or, you know, some other way than just like having them in our own lives. And so I was just very attuned to pain that people had. My particular childhood was not, you know, outwardly a painful childhood, but I remember feeling deeply the pain 
of other people in the world. And that is really what started to unravel my faith almost the moment that I realized I had any sort of faith. I thought kind of that age-old question that we've talked about in, in different episodes and definitely in Nathaniel's episodes, um, if God is good, then why are people hurting like this? That just doesn't seem like he's real or good um, or powerful. So at a young age, I became an atheist. I was very, very young, like early, early elementary school. And I was not a sophisticated atheist in any sort of way. I didn't have the language, the concepts to really articulate what that was. I just knew that what everyone else around me believed, I had stopped believing. And that was actually extremely difficult. And looking back, I wish I would have told someone, but I didn't. I didn't tell anyone and and I think there was fear in telling people because I, I didn't know what would happen there and then there was also this constant fear of well if I'm wrong I'm going to go to hell um and you know <laughs> I don't know I I started really going down a nihilist path and I thought if God's not real life is probably not worth living because there's just too much pain and not enough reward. And for a long time later on, after I did become a Christian, I, I really thought that was like a good reason to believe. And as I've gotten older into adulthood and have deconstructed that core assumption, that's been something I've really had to wrestle with. Um, because now I have had to look in the face, the scary question for me, like if God's not real, is life still worth living? And I've had to deal with the fact that now I would say, yes, it is. Because I think for so long, to some degree, my faith was leaning on that particular pillar as well as others. But that one is one I have had to let go of. And this degree and this project, this podcast has helped me, helped me do that. There are, there are still pillars there to this belief that haven't been toppled. And that's why I still would consider myself a Christian. But that one, that one has been, um, one that's been surprisingly hard to let go of. Anyway, as a young person with that assumption, I became very depressed because I didn't believe in God. And I also believed life probably wasn't worth living with that, um, with that stance. And so it, it became really difficult really early on to get through a single day with that kind of anxiety and pressure and like overwhelming dread that was very much constantly there unless I got distracted during the day, you know, through activities, through school, through family events. But it was always sort of there under the surface, this, this really negative feeling about my spirituality. And so I finally broke down in my mom's room and I told her, I was like, I don't think I believe in God anymore. And why do you, why do you believe in God? And she gave me this really just sweet, simple explanation for her faith. And it was just, you know, I've seen a few things and it makes sense and I trust and that's enough for me. And in that moment with all of this bearing down on me, I was like, I want that. I want God to be real, you know? And so I remember praying like, I don't know if you're real, but I'm going to believe. And I had a very physical 
and like emotional experience. It, it physically felt like something was being taken off of my shoulders, like off of my body. And I was filled with this lightness and this joy. And I remember thinking like, whoa, <laughs> okay, maybe there's something to this, you know? And, and I think people can often now look at that and be like, well, you were having a psychological experience only, you know? And I don't know, but I do know how it felt to me. And I also know that from then on, I would still have extreme doubts about God. And I wasn't a Christian, I would say at that point, because I did not know what I thought about Jesus and everything. But I never went to complete atheism again. And so my preteen and teen years were filled with a lot of spiritual things, um, a lot of doubts, a lot of wrestling, a lot of fear around, you know, the demonic world. Because again, I, I really had this kind of skeptical approach still. Um, I wasn't sure for a while what I thought of Jesus. You know, I thought there was a God, a good being. And I want to add that for all intensive purposes, I think what I displayed outwardly was the Christian good girl who was fully convinced. Um, and it wasn't like a fake thing that I displayed that. It was real because I always did feel a deep need to help hurting people around me. Um, and that was extremely closely tied to my concept of God. It's just that when I would get home and be by myself, there was also this doubtful side of me when it came to the logical details of believing. And like I said, a lot of that had to do it at the start about Jesus, you know. So fast forward to when I went to college, I went to a Christian school and I remember stumbling upon this amazing group called the Apologetics Club. And I didn't know what it was. I, I quickly found out it's this really scholarly group of people getting together to ask big metaphysical questions. It blew my mind to be part of this group because the professor really had such a calm, collected, articulate way of answering literally any question I threw at him. And up to this point, I'd been thinking, you know, I had this conversion experience to go off of, but I, I think I'm really going to have to take this Christianity thing completely on sort of blind faith besides that one experience. And and other experiences that I, I felt, you know, like when reading the Bible and when praying, there was very much a positive and beautiful relationship that I felt I had with God surrounding those things. But I, I was very aware it was still subjective. And I was like, I just, there's probably not like a logical defense of this thing because by nature it's outside of the physical world. And so to have this professor be so uh, knowledgeable, and to give me such a base of confidence was something I, I think I had been craving and I loved. And I always told myself, if I go on to get a master's degree, I want it to be in Christian apologetics. And so later in life, when I was able to do a master's degree, that's what I did. And this podcast is the final project for that. Um, <clears throat> but the funny thing is, this time around, doing apologetics at a higher level of education... Um, some things about my faith were definitely bolstered and some things really were questioned. Again, I actually, um, about a year and a half ago, started really going through deconstruction again and thinking, man, some of this stuff, I don't know if it actually holds water, if it actually stands up like I thought it did. Some aspects 
of this faith and the way I've been taught it. So this, this podcast came about um, as a way to open up the conversation to others who are experiencing similar things. And it was funny because a lot of people were not questioning Christianity because of the same things that I was, which kind of surprised me. I think, you know, <laughs> I was in my own little bubble and thinking everyone had the same kinds of doubts as me. Um, so that was really good and really challenging to hear about people's, you know, trauma and, um, and experiences within the church and why people were questioning God for different reasons than these. But as for why I have landed where I have landed, I'm going to start with a few personal experiences that may not convince other people, but have been very um, important in my spirituality. And so, of course, the conversion experience is one of them. But then something that was really surprising during this deconstruction period in adulthood was the way that prayers have been answered very specifically and unlikely prayers, I should say. And I'm going to share about two in particular that have been meaningful to me. I, I remember one particular prayer where I was really on the cusp of saying, you know, I don't, I don't think God's real at all, maybe. Um, and I prayed this prayer and I, I said, God, like, could you, if you are a loving father, could you just let me know you're here? It's not going to sway me. I know if you do, it's not going to fully convince me. And I know if you don't, it's not going to fully convince me that you're not there. But I, I really had this kind of like child plea of like, hey, could you just give me a little something like to, to let me know you love me. And it's hard to explain what exactly happened. But I was in a situation, I was in a place where music was never played. Um, it was at a relative's house and it just music wasn't something they had on. They had on, you know, television and, uh, but not music. And I was laying upstairs. I remember praying this prayer and I hear this beautiful instrumental rendition of be still my soul. And the reason that's important is because when I was a preteen and was having a lot of fear about the demonic and a lot of fear to go to sleep at night. I would play this one CD of instrumental hymns. And that song is the only one I really remember from that CD. Um, it was kind of like the title track. And it really was one of the only things that would call me down in those moments. And so I was thinking to myself, you know, is there any other song I really identify with in a strong way like this? Well, no, there isn't. And I think... Again, when I tell this story, and I have told it actually to some people who are, you know, agnostic and atheist, it's not convincing to them, of course, because you don't have that emotional connection. But I'm, I think if God is real and if God is a good father um, or a good, I guess we should say parent, um, that is exactly the sort of thing that would comfort my heart. You know, and so that again was one of those things and, and it was true. That didn't convince me that God was real. Um, but again, it kind of bolstered that, that bias towards, yes, I'm going to give God the benefit of the doubt. It bolstered that up a little bit. There were some other surprising prayers answered during this time, but for the, the sake of time, I'm going to share just one more example with you. A friend who had had some, um, 
concerning bumps on her neck for at least six months. She was starting to get really scared um, that they were cancer. The doctor said that it could be um, something pretty troublesome and that she needed to get it checked out. And she was over at my house very, very concerned about this. And I said, you know, I'm going to I'm going to pray for you. And again, I don't pray for miracles uh, powerfully or a lot. I feel like very awkward when I do that. And I feel like I often need to pray like, God, if it's not your will, just help the person through whatever they're going through. But this time I prayed, God, like, make these go away. Make these disappear. And I told her when I was done, I was like, I don't really know how to do this. Um, And I don't know, you know. where my faith is. I don't know. I just, I, I expressed to her that I had a real sense of, um, incompetence <laughs> and the ironic thing is she went home. I found this out later and she started praying, God, I want to be able to tell Liz that her prayer was answered. And so the next day she woke up and felt around and couldn't find anything. <laughs> The bumps were completely gone. And she came to my house and said, can you feel around back there? Like, do you feel them still? And I was like, no, I literally feel no bumps. And they did a biopsy. They did all this stuff and there's nothing there, nothing. And so that's the sort of thing, you know, where, and it's funny, like that doesn't fully convince me. For some people, I think that would, that would seal the deal. They'd say, okay, God's real. I experienced that. For me, that's an important piece of the puzzle. You know, that's an important part of the case. Um, but that doesn't completely seal the deal, which is kind of funny because it makes me think about, you know, certain times in the Bible when I remember feeling like, how in the world could someone see a miracle and not believe Jesus is God? And now I know, you know, because there's a lot more that goes into forming such an important kind of belief. So, um, yeah, that's been an interesting thing. But I do think that these experiences have, have definitely been a big part of where I'm at right now, um, even though they are personal and subjective. So I now want to talk about some of the logical reasons that I'm still a Christian. And these were some hurdles that I really felt need to be overcome for me to continue in belief. And to start with, that initial problem that I left Christianity for, which was the problem of suffering, um, has been, it's weird to say answered, because I'm not sure that that's a problem that's ever going to be fully answered, but I do think it has been satisfactorily explained to me where I can't hold that against the belief in God and I can't hold that against um, Christianity anymore in the way that I did initially as a child. Because when you look at the problem of suffering, um, this was explained in one of my classes taught um, by Dr. Sean McDowell. There are really three ways you can go about considering this problem. And I suppose skeptical um, people and different kinds of deists may think that there's actually more ways or less ways. But to me, these three make a lot of sense. And the first one is that there's an emotional problem with the suffering and evil that we see in the world. There's an emotional problem because it doesn't feel right in any of our lives on a personal level that that should happen if God's really there and really good. 
And then the second, of course, is the logical problem, which is this idea that is it even possible? Like it doesn't seem like it would be possible that that evil and suffering could exist with a God that's presented like the one in the Bible. And then the third problem, which is where I really think the meat is at, (laughs) is called the evidential problem. And it says, is it more probable or not that God exists when we look at this kind of suffering and evil in the world? And those distinctions are important to me because, you know, from a completely academic head knowledge lens, the emotional problem, while being important to our lives, doesn't really get to have a say on whether or not this is real or not. And it's painful to say that (laughs) because I've had enough pain now in life and enough anger at God at times that I don't want to just dismiss that as not important. And it absolutely is. But it really, how I feel, how any of us feel about it, just it doesn't actually determine whether or not God exists in spite of it. You know, we have to move on to the logical realm. And when you look at the logical problem um, of whether or not a good, all just, all powerful being could allow these things, there are ways that he actually could. And I think the free will defense gives one very well put argument that might not be how it works, but that's one way that it could work um, is that, you know, the best possible world is a world of free being. So we talked about this um, when I interviewed Nathaniel and that comes with this, this opportunity for pain and injustice and evil to exist because to be free means to choose otherwise. And so Nathaniel, I remember said, you know, no, that's not necessarily the case. We could be free and have all our needs met and then we would still choose the right thing every time. And I'm not fully convinced that that's the case, especially since you would automatically forfeit some of our very core positive human attributes, such as courage. If you have no opportunity to fear, you have no opportunity to actually develop courage that's something along with, you know, resilience and other things like that, that is only possible when there is friction because friction is the catalyst for, for growth. And I think, you know, in the world Nathaniel described, it's a more comfortable world, but I'm not convinced it's a better world than a world where the possibility of people harming each other is there because of all the things you have to give up. And the free will defense, I think, gives a very interesting explanation, very convincing explanation. I'm not sure that's how exactly it works. But the thing about that is I don't have to know for sure that's how it works to know that there is a possibility. And if there's a possibility, then I can no longer hold it against God and say, you absolutely cannot be either good, just, or powerful, or real, because there's a possible way that those things can all be at the same time. So while I don't know all the reasons God would allow evil and suffering, I don't think I could honestly say anymore that the Christian God can't exist because of it. The assumption that God can't exist in light of the evil we see is, to me, ironically, a very evangelical way of thinking that something can only be black or white, true or false, based on strong emotion, and not a larger, more universal picture. 
The next thing I want to talk about just briefly is origins, um, origins of the universe, especially. And this is something I talked about with Dylan. And this is a very similar thing to how I experienced the problem of pain. I don't know exactly what happened. And I don't know, you know, a lot about the science of it. But I do know it is, again, possible and actually, I think more probable, again, that there was a mind or a will behind the existence of this universe because it seems a lot less probable to say everything came from literally nothing. Instead of saying, okay, no, there was like something immaterial that caused that. And so this has been something that in the past I looked into a lot more, but to me... Again, it doesn't just like explain everything about God and and everything, but it does give me this sense of, okay, another piece of the puzzle is here that we need to be here if this is going to stand. So that was a big one for me too. And then the final deal that really, um, I should say the final piece of evidence that to me is the most important one and the surprisingly strongest one in many ways is the high likelihood of the resurrection. So I took a class at Biola, again with Sean McDowell, um, about the resurrection of Jesus, looking at how does it stand up historically? How does it stand up, um, you know, when we look at the different options of what could have happened? Like, could it have been that the disciples were um, having a mass hallucination and thinking that they're seeing Jesus? Could it have been that, you know, people got some of these details wrong or that the the apostles actually fabricated a lie in order to spread their religion? And I went into this class thinking, like, there's so much we're never going to know about the details of what actually happened. But to falsify this claim, to demonstrate that the resurrection actually did not occur, would have been really easy to verify historically. You know, we would have had a body, for one. Someone would have found a body. The Jews certainly did not want there to be a lack of a body. Um, And we don't have that. And we have a bunch of historical documentation that this event occurred, or at least believers that supposedly saw it firsthand were absolutely convinced that it occurred. And, you know, I was really convinced before this class that the the mass hallucination hallucination theory was really probably what happened um, if, if it didn't check out. But when you look at the nature of hallucinations, the nature of how people experience them um, one-on-one, which we have a lot of accounts of people experiencing hallucinations by themselves, not just mass hysteria. Um, It doesn't line up. It doesn't line up that they're all seeing this person who they really didn't expect to ever see again. There wasn't this expectation that I think we have on the other side of history you know, when we read the New Testament as Christians, we expect to see Jesus again. And we're like, well, yeah, he says it right here. But the, the thing is, it wasn't clear. And, and we see that in the way that the disciples were like distraught and completely overwhelmed when Jesus is killed. And so 
when I look at these disciples who were completely fearful, completely distraught, completely out of sorts, I can imagine one or two maybe having a hallucination, thinking they're seeing Jesus again. But the body would have easily disproved that. And supposedly, the body was being really well guarded by people who didn't want something like this to happen. You know, and instead, what do you see? All of these disciples going out and having a radical shift of boldness, all of them believing they have seen Jesus alive and all of them being willing to die for that belief, which is not to say they all did die for it, but they exhibited willingness to be able to die for that belief in the positions they put themselves in, in the, in the places they preached. And so there's a radical shift that happened that has early on, even, even when I was, you know, young and really doubting, I heard about this and I thought, that's really interesting. Were they believing a lie? I don't think so. Cause it's really hard to get 11 people to do that. Um, were they believing, you know, were they trying to propagate something that they knew was false? Again, I don't think you could get 11 people to do that. If one person knows the truth, somebody's going to crack, especially because we see them crack under pressure when Jesus is, is taken to be crucified. So to me, that's a big piece of evidence, along with the fact that it is historically recorded that he predicted this death and predicted his resurrection. So these are just all pieces that kind of play into um, the case for the resurrection, I suppose. And, you know, from a naturalist standpoint, what we would have expected, historically speaking, is that this person would have lived, died, was buried. That was the end of that, you know we would have expected to see a much different historical record um, by, by people who are secular, by people who had believed in him before the, the death, you know. But instead, we see something that very much um, leaves room for that to have actually occurred, this resurrection narrative. And the thing is, at that point, if you say, okay, it's likely that it happened you could say maybe it wasn't actually like a spiritual thing. Maybe it was, you know, <laughs> aliens or something. Um, but at that point you have to weigh, is it more likely that one of these things, these other explanations happened or that what this person actually said is what actually happened? And to me, you know, it's so very unlikely that it would happen that if it did and, and he talked about it, I'm going to give that some credence, you know. There's an amazing book that really opened my eyes to some of these details. And it was done very, very objectively, in my opinion, um, by someone who sought to see if this um, historical occurrence of the supposed resurrection could really stand up to secular scrutiny and secular tests of um, legitimacy. And yeah, that book is by Mike Lacona. And it is called The Resurrection of Jesus. So, yeah, the resurrection, origins, suffering, my personal experiences, these are all reasons that I still do um, believe in Christianity, believe in God, believe in Jesus. And there's quite a bit that beyond that I'm reevaluating and, and trying to work through, trying to see if it, if it holds up like I've been taught my whole life. But those are sort of the core things that have me where I'm at, at least theologically speaking. You know, I, 
have been changed through our conversations, even though I didn't necessarily change my core position and I don't think any of my guests changed theirs, but I've been challenged to think about how open am I to truth? How open am I to these tenets of my faith, you know, being scrutinized and being deconstructed? And it's a, it's a scary thing, I think, for anyone to really do that. But I think that's something I long to always be open to do. I want to be, you know, the apologist who isn't so much interested in defending something to the world before defending it to my own searching soul. <laughs> so... Now the question is what to do about the church, because even though this podcast is based about people based on people leaving evangelicalism, for me, I really thought it was going to lead towards people having issues with um, the nature of God and that, that kind of philosophy. And what I found is that's not always the case. So I've been asking myself, what do I do now about this body of believers called the evangelical church? You know, I, I'm going to have to spend some time thinking about what to do about that, thinking about what to do when it comes to church and and what my part will be in church or out of church. And I think the thing that still makes me think about staying in church is I think about me five years ago, you know, and the people, there are some people that really bother me in church now, especially after listening to some of our guests. I have been the person who has hurt other people in church and I didn't know it. And I was trying to be honest and I was trying to be good and bring about positive change in this world and bring about God's love. And I didn't know. And so I keep thinking, okay, if that was me, would the person who's five years ahead who's, you know, experienced a different kind of deconstruction, would they, would their leaving the church be helpful or would their staying be helpful? And I think for me at this exact moment, I think staying is the most helpful thing to actually make a change in the sphere of influence that I have and to actually help those who've been hurt by the church and help those in the church see, you know, where we fall short. Thank you so much for listening to my story and for listening along this season to these different conversations. I think the space that we are holding for people is, it's such a big part of moving forward in the spiritual landscape that we're at in America and in the Western world as a whole right now. So by you listening, you have been a part of that and I'm truly grateful. I wanted to give a little update on what is happening in season two of Deconstructing the Myth. I will be joined by Jenny White, who was a guest earlier this season, and we will be diving into troublesome Bible passages. So I actually have quite a few guests lined up to interview for season three, so we will resume interviews. But in the meantime, as I'm interviewing them, Jenny was gracious enough to come along and help produce this additional content with me. And it's going to be great, I think, because this is a big thing a lot of people in deconstruction wrestle with, is those difficult sections of the Bible. As for Jenny, she is receiving her Master's of Liberal Arts in Museum Studies from Harvard. And I recently received my Master's in Christian Apologetics from Biola University. So she will be covering the history, the background, the context, and I will be giving kind of the theological landscape, um, both looking at, you know, the original text and the original uh, context within 
the writing of each passage, but also the theology that developed around those passages. Yeah, together we're just kind of hoping to do a little bit of a deep dive and and really talk more about is what we have been taught in church really what is actually in the Bible or is it what we have been taught to think about the Bible? So if you have a passage that you would like us to discuss, please feel free to shoot us an email at deconstructingthemyth at gmail.com and we will definitely take that into consideration as we are assembling those passages now. That's a wrap, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for season one of Deconstructing the Myth. I hope you have a wonderful rest of 2022, and we will catch you back here in 2023. If this episode was meaningful to you, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash deconstructingthemyth so that episodes like today's keep coming.